For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. This is God's word. Let's bow our heads heads in prayer, please. Dear gracious Father, Lord God, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would uh, allow me to speak this message uh, with grace and truth. Lord, I pray that you would uh, take control of my emotions as this can be a, a very uh, emotional um, topic, not just uh, for me, but for many in our body. Lord, I pray that uh, no one will leave with a spirit of condemnation, Lord, but that we will be just uh, one, just celebrating um, your design for life, as well as have a passion to, to minister to our community And Lord, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, Three, four, five, six, seven. That was a a habit that I used to have, that I used to watch my children play or or just hanging around the house, and I would just count them: Avi, Imani, Jacob, Ethan, Timothy, five. And then I will add the other two who I allowed to be aborted. And this was my way of um, using guilt, um, holding on to guilt, holding on to shame as a punishment. It was one of those things where I could, I believe the Lord forgave me for the sin, the, the, the sexual sin and the adulterous affair that went into that um, went into one abortion. I believe that he forgave me of just the plain selfishness for the the first one. But that ideal of abortion, like how could God forgive someone, forgive a man um, for allowing that? To happen and allowing uh, his wife to go there. And this, in the beginning of my journey with Christ, haunted me for a while because I, I came to Christ and he, re, he, he restored my marriage. I, I got involved with the church and people used to celebrate me and be like, man, you know, you're loving the Lord, you're loving your family. 
um, man, you're, you're doing a great job with your kids. And, and it's like, yeah, thank you. Praise the Lord. But in my mind, I would just continuously um, guilt trip myself. And it wasn't this one moment where I finally was relieved of that. It was that process of sanctification that the more I came to understand what was grace, um, the more I came to understand God's love for me, the more I began to learn about just the, the depth of his forgiveness, that he forgave all my sins from the east to the west, and there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You know, somehow I was freed up from that guilt and shame. And so I begin my sermon today this way because I realized, one, 73% of abortions are, are women who profess Christ. And so there are so many women in our pews who suffer silently. And whenever I had the opportunity to speak on this you know, issue, I will always have one or two beautiful sisters come up to me and say, thank you. I've been really struggling with that. I've been holding on to shame. I'm, I'm glad you're speaking on it. And so I don't know everyone's story, but I pray that if there's anyone in here who have had an abortion um, and struggle with the guilt, right, I pray that you will find um, peace in the forgiveness of our Savior. You know, in the words of the great Bar Bob Marley, no woman, no cry. Right? Again, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And it's not the unforgivable sin. And so as I have to speak some hard truths today, I don't want you to use those truth, those truths to, to, to shame or just to hold on to that guilt. Right? I want you to be free. Amen. Also, I want to say is this is a topic that um, is something I'm burdened about and I've spoken a lot about and I've spoken with, you know, people in this congregation on the issue and we might have had some differences. Um, I want you to know that as I'm speaking, there may be something that sounds like it's from a personal conversation, but I want you to know that... Um, and I had these conversations for a long time. And, um, and so I don't want anyone to be like, oh, how you play me like that? Or thinking I'm abusing confidentiality. It's just these issues like rape and health and Planned Parenthood and like uh, elections and voting. Those things are just, you know, on the hearts of a lot of people, whether you're on the pro-choice side or the pro-life um, side. So please don't feel like I'm taking any personal shots. Amen. With that being said, um, over the next two weeks, yeah, they gave me two weeks for this topic. Um, <laughs> my hope for the next two weeks is, one, I want to get away from the labels, the propaganda, the rhetoric, the talking points um, that are usually used without any type of nuance. What I found is that they're, uh, right now people kind of got their camps. And we got these talking points that we throw at each other. And usually things don't grow from the talking points. And what happens is, is abortion is a very complex issue. 
And so it needs to be, um, we need to talk about it with like nuance. Like why is somebody pro-choice? Why is somebody pro-life, right? Um, so why do women have abortions? So it's a very complex um, topic. And so I want to get away from the talking points. Also, I want to discuss what abortion is. And that kind of goes to the first point, right? I think in the midst of all our political back and forth, we forget what abortion is. There was a time when this topic was a little easier to talk about because you had pro-abortion, anti-abortion, and then you had this, the, the country who they, abortion was, and I'm talking like before the 1960s, where abortion's been in America since the colonies, right? And so, but it's one of those things where um, it wasn't as rare as we like to think back in the good old days, but at the same time, it wasn't mainstream. And so you had these two movements, pro-abortion, anti-abortion, kind of battling out, and you had society kind of like, um, you know, we don't know, we're not comfortable. And so it was kind of silent. But then when it became pro-life and then the anti-abortion, the pro-abortion side had to go, well, wait a minute, we don't want to be pro-death. So then they took on the pro-choice. It got really messy because one, it gave the nation a, a opt out. Oh, I could be pro-choice. And so I could kind of get out of this conversation. But the irony of it is, is that now you got to defend that neutral position. And so what happens with that is I think you got a lot of people who wasn't necessarily pro-abortion. They were just looking for a way out. But now because of pro-choice, it kind of helped the actually the pro-abortion argument. And so and in the midst of that, what abortion is was lost. That makes sense. All right. I want to help us better understand the issue in our context. Many of you come from maybe conservative evangelical churches, uh, white churches, where that issue is entrenched. And you, you might think it's kind of like an idol. Um, but in the black church and in the social justice movement, um, in the urban cities, it's not an entrenched topic. It's actually a topic where it's not talked about or is we're silent on the issue. And so I want to help us be able to navigate this tough issue in our inner city cultural context. And then I want to help free you up to engage the issue in your flavor and your rhythm. I'm not here to recruit you to the pro-life movement. I don't even consider myself in the pro-life movement, but just like I don't consider myself in the Black Lives Matter movement as an organization, I agree with the principle that black lives matter. And I also agree with the pr principle of pro-life. And I believe that I don't have to be a card-carrying member of the NRA or conservative Republican, right, to be pro-life. I also don't think that we have to de denounce the social justice movement just in order to stand in solidarity with the unborn. I don't think we have to make those choices, right? But the difficult thing is how do we be a prophetic voice to both sides? All right. Exodus 20, 13. Die shall not murder. Now we understand that it's wrong to kill innocent human beings because they are created in the image of God. God. 
It is the reason why Black Lives Matter. It's the reason why our hearts break whenever we hear innocent people struck down at the hands of terrorists or white supremacists. The experience of grief over the loss of innocent human beings is as natural as my wife's beautiful kinky hair. But when we hear about the millions upon millions of babies who have lost their lives in the womb through abortion, why is it that the majority of the nation's heart is cold, apathetic, or even defensive? I believe the reason is is because we have accepted that abortion is a just killing that's necessary for the financial, physical, emotional, and social well-being of the, of the mother. In other words, abortion is murder cloaked in compassion. Again, abortion is murder cloaked in compassion. Now, I'm not against compassion, and I'm not unaware of the social issues that places a mother in a situation where she feels like abortion is the only way out. But I'm not so naive to or unaware of the fact that millions of these abortions aren't this poverty narrative, but it's just this convenience. Uh, unwanted babies can be an inconvenience. And I know sometimes we don't like to hear that. And I don't want to, like, downplay the, the tough decision. I think a lot of women, whether it's for a quality life or uh, financial hardship, in both those situations, like, I don't, some women do. is no big deal. But I think a lot of women is a tough situation. And so I don't want to come off not compassionate, but I just don't accept the compassion that abortion is this therapeutic um, tool to help women cope with life. You know, I think about before my days before Christ and me and my homies, I had a homie come up to me and he says, he was just like, yo, man. This girl pregnant, man, you know, I don't, I ain't trying to pay the $400 for the abortion, right? He was just like, she going to do it, she going to do it. I ain't paying up that money. And, you know, our advice to him was just like, dude, you want to pay $400 once? Or do you want to pay $400 every other week or once a month for the next 18 years? You see, I've been on both sides of this issue. I have been inside the abortion clinic. I have stood outside the abortion clinic trying to persuade fathers from not leading their women in there. I have felt the relief of having an abortion take place thinking, ah, I got out of that. But I also had to feel the pain of realizing what I have done. Again, this issue is complicated, it's hard, it's tough. But we can't allow um, this, this distorted sense of compassion to keep us silent. And I think a ditch that well-meaning Christians fall into is that they run with the convenient 
abortion narrative and don't take in and they don't take into account the problems of this world. Right. That might be the pro-life side of it where, you know, they're about the unborn. But then and I won't say that they're not for um, life after the womb, because I know a lot of great pro-lifers who love the mommy, love the father, love the baby, are killing it in a, oh, I shouldn't use that word, are really rocking it out in the inner cities, um, in crisis pregnancy centers, uh, represent a, uh, adoption, you know, big ups to my former church evangel who has really um, led the way in there, um, as well as my homie Chris Coatney. This brother used to stand outside abortion clinics, you know, just persuading women and just just caring for them. And he walks around with this portfolio of just all the pictures of women who decided to keep their baby. And they would go to him and take a picture with him. And that was like, you know, his big thing. He always had that binder. You know, he was single, so it wasn't like a good icebreaker when he tried to. You know, the court woman, but it was just crazy. But I love that brother. So anyway, there's just a lot of good people in the pro-life movement who do love both. It's just when we get into this political standpoint, you know, we can go back and forth. Rather, um, their political mode is is, is really um, helpful. But they're good people, but I think they fall into that ditch and not understanding systemic issues. But I think also us social justice folks, I'll go ahead and put myself in there, power to the people. You know, sometimes what we do is we don't want to deal with um, what it is. We just want to focus on the social issues, right? And so as long as long as we could say, well, when we vote for this particular party, abortions go down, that kind of give us an out where we can go, See, I'm pro-life. But again, there's a ditch. You fall into it because now it's kind of like, it's really kind of a a pro-choice side where you're like, I'm just not going to deal with it. I'm just going to do what I do. And so again, I want us to break away from that. Now, abortion is murder cloaked in compassion. And to cover up the crime, we rob the victim of their humanity. You know, and we do this by one is the vilification of the unborn. In 1858, right, again, this issue of abortion been going on for a long time. I want to read you a quote um, from a pro-abortion advocate. And he says, unwelcome children arising by father and mother will grow up doomed to drunkenness, to lying, to revenge, and will become a miser, a warrior, a slaveholder, a robber, a murderer, a pirate, or an assassin. Well, at least put slaveholder in there, you know. But, so this was like the unwanted child, right? Next slide. Then we have now... Back in 1800s, they kind of dog, well, they didn't like, they were just flat out with it. Nowadays, we kind of dog whistle. And we say things like, these unwanted children fare less well in life than their peers. Their social hard handicapped persist at least into adulthood. Underemployment, poverty, and dependency on social services are other, oh, and other consequences of denied abortion. This is David A. Grimes, chief of the abortion surveillance branch. I just found out that that's a thing. 
at the center, check that out, at the center of disease control. Unwanted children is a health issue. You see, there's a stigma. And I think I had, did I have another, another quote up there? Right. Again, this is by the same organization, the CDC, a federal organization. It says both common sense and empirical evidence suggests that children fare best when they are wanted and loved. Studies using many different measures concur. For example, unwanted children are at risk of juvenile delinquency. One study for Washington State found that children born to unwed teenagers had an 11-fold higher risk of becoming chronic juvenile delinquents than did other children. Other studies have found the combination of a complicated birth and maternal rejection to be associated with juvenile crime, right? This is like the view. And understand this. This article, he was arguing the reason why we shouldn't deny access to abortion. This was the argument in the Huff Post, Huffington Post, right? How many of you have read that, right? It's not any obscure website. You know, sometimes if you put life news, you'd be like, uh-oh, that's a pro-choice, that's a pro-life. We, we kind of dismiss it. But this is a mainstream media. It's not fake news. But they used unwanted, that ideal of loved, that ideal of an unwanted child, um, is one, a social burden. Who's going to take care of all these kids? Right. And think about it. When we see a mother with multiple kids, especially our single mothers, and we see them with kids, we have this subtle thing going on. We're just kind of like, dude, there's birth control. <laughs> right. Now, we won't say, dude, there's abortion. But we have this stigma that we put on single mothers where we celebrate her not having kids, no matter how that happened. But when she do have these kids, when she says, my child is wanted, the stigma is already there where society says, no, it's not wanted. And this stigma goes on to the mother. The stigma goes on to the child. And guess what happens when this unwanted child is born, then he becomes Trayvon Martin. Then he becomes Mike Brown because he was already vilified in the womb. There's a continuity to our inhumanity. We have to break away from this polarization and realize when it comes to our humanity, we can't just live in this talking points world because neither side has it right. This is pro-choice, right? And the reason why I'm kind of lingering on here is because we're in the hood and we're social justice cats, right? But we need to understand that our ministry goes beyond our social justice movement, but it's about a kingdom movement. It's about proclaiming God's truth. Amen? The second way we dehumanize the unborn 
is this ideal of personhood. And, and what is personhood? Personhood is the quality or condition of being an individual person. It is the thing that gives us our value. Right? And so people say, well, you know, uh, personhood. Um, they will say, well, put it this way. The question we have to ask is, what qualifies one to be a person, right? So there's this ideal of personhood, and personhood is what gives us our, our, our value. Personhood is the way that we gain rights. Personhood is the way that we get protect, protection, right? So what qualifies someone for this, to be valued in this way? Well, here are some ideals of personhood, right? Some people would say when the fetus is viable outside the womb. Some people would say after first trimester. Some would say at the quickening, right? When the baby begins to kick and you feel it. Some would say when the soul enters, which who knows? Well, actually, they don't know. I think the Bible tells us. Some would say at first breath. Some would say at, uh, when they can reason. Some would say self-awareness. Some would say when they can feel pain. Some would say when they can communicate. And some would even say a few months after birth. That's the extreme side. But there are people at major universities that hold that opinion. Now, the ideal behind personhood is that if you don't qualify, then you have no rights. Therefore, abortion is acceptable. Now, as a woke or social justice minded church, this language should alert us, especially us, excuse me, who history is one of having to fight for personhood, rights, dignity and our humanity. In other words, it's black folks. Right. When we hear these things of personhood and we hear that someone's humanity is being devalued, that should have a stop, the pause. You see, the personhood argument is a textbook example of dehumanizing a people group for the prosperity and liberty of another. Whenever personhood becomes the topic of discussion, best believe a people group is about to catch it. And historically... Right. The personhood argument is also problematic because who gets to decide what philosophy are we going to go with? Who ideology are we going to rock with? Now, historically, it's whoever has the power and the privilege. And in our country, it was white privileged progressives, progressive minded folks who wanted America to look like their vision of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and their concepts of human flourishing, and if I may be 100, promoting their brand of white supremacy. Now, family, you know I'm not a Fox News cat, so I don't want you to start me hearing me say these things and then just begin to dismiss me because this seems to be like typical conservative um, talking point, right? But it's not like that. The reality of it is, it's like, we, by accepting or standing silent on this abortion issue, we have traded one strand of white supremacy for another strand of white supremacy. You see, this country issue, 
And I heard someone said the original issue was sin, right? That's the original sin of this country. It's not. It goes deeper. The original sin of this country is that Imago Day never matters. The image of God never mattered. When Columbus came and genocide the Native American, all in the name of Jesus. When the, abortion, when the slavery owners used Christ to justify the enslavement of the Africans. I mean, we done had to deal with um, children's rights, right? Workers' rights. Um, we done had to deal with all these different type of issues. All these different issues. This country's original sin is the fact that Imago Day doesn't matter. And where we cannot be blind to white supremacy when it looks like it's coming from our allies. And the thing with abortion is a double-edged sword because it's about reproductive freedoms. Now, I'm cool with reproductive freedoms, birth control, all those things, not a problem. But it's when we get to the point where we're so determined, where we say, God, I said no, right? When birth control fails, when the rhythm message method fails, and we go, no, I said no babies. That's the issue. And so when abortion came on that, 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 that progressive liberation train, it helped um, progressive privileged white folks who wasn't necessarily in power, but they wanted, they had a view of America that they wanted to push. So it was to liberate them from conservatism. It was to liberate them from traditional marriage. It was to liberate them from um, a biblocentric view of sexuality. But at the same time, we elitists, if we're having the abortions and we're using the birth control and the poor, the blacks, the people of color are not, that got, that could be problematic because we still want to maintain power, right? So what can we do? Again, it's a double-edged sword. We can use it to liberate us so we could be free to do our thing, but at the same time, we can give access, access to health care to the Negro. In fact, that was behind the Negro project. And oftentimes this is the point where people go, Planned Parenthood, Margaret Sanger. Now, I don't want to go deep into this, and we'll talk about it a little bit next week. But understand this, and I want to ask you a question. Why is it that we could see systemic racism in everything but this? You see, when I grew up, the way that we found racism, where we looked at things that happened in our community that was disproportionate. Low education outcomes, we could trace that to the systemic system of race. We look at poverty, yeah, we can trace that back. Systemic issue of racism. I remember there was a time where malt liquor, where we looked in the hood and it was a, a malt liquor was sold in the hood, but not in the suburbs. We was just like, yo, yo, what's up with that? That's race. The war on drugs. Everybody knew. <laughs> We didn't bring this into the hood. 
But we can look at it and go, man, you know what? This is a part of race. I mean, as an African-American growing up in the hood in the hip hop culture that was influenced by the 1960s black empowerment movement, finding racism is just like a deer learning how to survive in the woods. Right. That natural instinct. But why is it when we look at the numbers of abortions and we see that abortion disproportionately affect African-American babies? 13 percent of the population but we're 40% of abortions. We could trace it back and we could see that there's a systemic issue with it. Does that mean that everybody that's with Planned Parenthood is a, uh, a, a, a eugenist or a racist? No, but I'm telling you family in the words of Malcolm X, we've been hoodwinked. We've been bamboozled. And we have bought into, and just like the drug wars got us, this reproductive abortion wars got us. You feel me? Now, I want to get into some Bible. It's probably been the longest we have went. Well, actually, I did have one Bible verse. But now I want to I make the case for life. Now, you may hear like nobody knows when life begins, right? How many of you have heard that? Like nobody knows when life begins. Now, the thing is, that's not, we know when life begins. It begins at conception, biology, embryology. It all says that at conception, a living life begins, right? When people say, that we don't know is not an issue of life. It's an issue of humanity and value. You see, science can tell us that it is a life, but it doesn't tell us if that life should be valued. And so when you hear those things, I don't want us to go out going because there's a lot of people that say, mm, we don't know. I don't want you to use that as an opportunity or just say, well, I guess we can't know. So, I'm just not going to deal with it because we, 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 we do know our personhood, our value is the fact that we are created in the image of God. That's our personhood. Full stop. No question. Because God created us so that we could be loved and known by him. Both life and humanity begins at conception. And let us be truthful. Most abortions are not happening at conception. Mommy don't even know yet. Right. Abortions typically happens later in the embryonic phase, um, right before the fetal stage. And even at that point, there's a heartbeat and there's all these other things going on. Um, 92% of abortions happen um, within the first trimester, somewhere between that fourth week as, uh, to like the 12th week. And so we look at this passage of scripture. It says, for you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Now, family, the first thing I want to say is 
I don't want to treat the Bible like a science textbook. I don't want to, you know, just like sometimes we look at Genesis and we make it a, 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 a geology book or whatever. I don't want to make the Bible a science textbook because that's not what it is. And I also want to be sensitive to make sure that the scriptures I'm using, that I'm using them in context and not taking them out of context just to fit what I want um, to push. Right. Um, but what we do find that the beautiful thing about science is that there's times through scientific discoveries and technologies that we can understand a little bit more about things that's going on in scripture. Um, and so I think science can affirm um, what we're talking about today, even though, again, science can't give us that that life should be valued. But it should be able to help us be able to go out into the world to make the case for life. Now, what I'm about to give you is not going to hold up in the Supreme Court. All right. But I do think philosophy and science does philosophy, science and our common sense, because we know as a baby, we just like to, you know, be human, which is oppress other humans. That's what we do. That's the history. Right. And so. For you formed me in my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. Now, what we have here, where it says you form my inward parts, and if I can find it, I got a little crap. All right. The whole of Psalm 139 is David singing of the reality that God is an all knowing, all powerful, ever present creator. There's nowhere he can go or nowhere where he's been, where he wasn't under the watchful eye of God. And as David is praising God of these realities, he takes us into God's loving, creative work in the womb. Right? And so now when we look from the womb, it talks about the inward parts. And that word, inward, the word for inward parts um, can be translated into kidneys. Right? And so you form my kidneys. Now, what do that mean, right? So people go, well, see, it's just a kidney. Um, but what that is referring to is this ideal of um, the inward most being of who we are. And we get this ideal of kidney meaning inmost being is because of the position of the kidneys in the bodies that makes them particularly inaccessible and in cutting up an animal, they are the last organs to be reached. Consequently, they, are, they were a natural symbol for the most hidden part of a man. And so we see here where it's talking about life. We can also go to Job 16, 13, where it talks about, this, use this word, in the same context as destroying, right? Not just a life destroyed, just the humanity, just the being. So total destruction. And so this word, it talks about our inmost being. It's our personality. It is who we are. And when we talk about abortion, when they go, man, it's not a person. The Bible is saying, no, you know, at conception, I knew you. I knew your personality. I put you there. Right. He knew that David was going to grow up and be a man of lust and blood. Right. David said, I was conceived in sin. Right. 
that physical nature, that sinful nature was there in the very beginning at his birth. But the thing is, God in this scripture was just, he said, I knew that. I knew you were going to be tripping. All right, just think about that. I'm, my mother was a teenage mother. I was conceived in the same situation where people would say, it's okay. I would be an unwanted child. But when I was in my mama's womb, God knew that I was going to grow up to do all type of jacked up stuff. He knew me then before my mommy knew me before my daddy knew me. God knew me and he was there. He loved me. Go to the next verse. Oh, dad just had it. Oh. oh, can you go up? I'm just bad with these slides. All right. So I'm just going to do it this way. And so here, verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in a secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. And then 16, you, your eyes saw my unformed substance in your books were written. Every one of them, the days that we were formed. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Right? To sum all this up, my frame, right? It's that beautiful work in the womb when we're looking at 4D scans and we're looking at all these pictures and we see God just, just bringing forth all these things. And I love, right, your skeletal. So we got our personality, right? We Now we're getting our... Um, our skin complexion, right? He knew I was going to be a dark brother, right? Um, the bone, your height, your structure, like all these other things is taking place when it talks about my frame. And then this key word, unformed substance. In the Hebrew, the word is, is referring to an unformed mass. It's this unformed mass. An embryo. You could translate that. Embryo, your eyes saw my embryo. Now, again, they didn't have microscopes there. But God has already said, like, yo, that, 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 what they say is just a clump of cells? No, that's my image. And what we could see, um, and I think I got the next quote. I'll go up again. I hope I put that down. You know what? I don't know what I'm doing. All right. Well, anyway, there was, I had a quote that I cannot find right now. But basically, it talks about in the beginning, and it talks about science, like at that moment of science, uh, when we could look into the DNA and we could study those type of things, we just see like, oh, there you go. Praise the Lord from conception, because the tough thing about this issue, I don't like science. And and now I got to talk science, but praise the Lord for Dr. Maureen Kondik. And she says from conception. So think about that unformed mass. Right. They tell us it's just a couple of cells. No big deal. Right. For, from conception forward, human embryos clearly function as a whole living organism. They are not mere collections of cells like those on a course 
but are living creatures with all the properties that define any organism as distinct from a group of cells. Embryos are capable of growing, maturing, maintaining, uh, physiologic, physiologic, balance between various organ systems, adapting to changing circumstances, and that's crazy, repairing injury. Mere groups of human cells do nothing like this under any circumstances. That unformed mass, this wonderful work was going on. It's crazy, isn't it? It's, it's, it's just the brilliance of God and the way that he designed and ordered us to come to this world. And one of the things he gives us science and he allows us to discover so we can look into the womb and go, whoa, you see what God is doing in the womb? But we go, whoa, what's going on in the womb? You see, it's our mission to, what is that one um, document we got in the binder? Uh, raise our view of God. What we have to do is begin to raise the view of the Imago Day of being created in the image of God. Amen. Now, I know time is slipping away. And so David at conception was not a potential human. He was a human with great potential. And the beautiful thing is this, from David's line, who was going to come? Who was going to come? Christ. And if there's no other, like, if there's no other thing in the world that I can show you to convince you of the humanity of the unborn, it's the fact, I mean, if, if I can't win the argument here, I got to be able to win the argument with the incarnation, at least with the house of God. Amen. The incarnation is like the drop mic verse to this issue. Again, this issue is not going to be won in the Supreme Court, but it should begin to have us go, wait a minute. When Jesus took flesh... It was a zygote. When he was conceived, it wasn't that baby in the manger that when he was conceived, right? When he came to dwell amongst us, and I think I got that scripture up there somewhere. Please forgive me for us. Okay. Where it says, first, oh, John, one. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. When Jesus, the son of God, ascended, the second member of the Trinity, he took flesh. He became like us in every respect. Now, they make the argument that life doesn't begin at birth. Right. But we see that humanity and life does begin at birth. But what's more profound than that is the fact that God's love for us began before conception. His love began before conception. 
You see, before the foundation of the world, sometime in eternity, a conversation happened amongst the members of the Trinity. The, this conversation is what theologians call the covenant of redemption. God knew that man uh, who he created in his image out of an abundance of his love will rebel against him. So an agreement was made among the father, the son and the Holy spirit in which Jesus, the son agreed to become a man, to be our representatives, to fulfill all the demands of the law. And on our behalf, pay the penalties for our sin. Scripture support for this is Titus 1, 2, where it says in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the age began. Ephesians 1, 4, even as he chose us, even as he chose us in him before the foundation, that we should be holy, blameless before him in love. His love began before Conception. And what he did to show his love for us is that he did the greatest act of love, and that was to give us his son. Now, some of my reformed brethren may say, now, 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 wait a minute, Alvin. You know, that's what some of the old, my grandmother, some of the old folks in my family, like when they get excited, they'd be like, now, 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 wait a minute. Right. And so some of the reformed brothers go, well. You know, you're just talking about those who are chosen. The rest are, you know, vessels of wrath. But I believe that even in eternity, like the fact that we look at John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I think that even those who will not come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is still an image bearer. And because he's an image bearer, he is loved by God. So I wanted to give some clarity of that. So I'll get him up later. Amen. And so here's the spectacular part. When he, when it says in Hebrew two seventeen through eight, it says, therefore he, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for sin of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And then Philippians talked about um, a servant being born in the likeness of men. So again, what does it mean to be born in the likeness of men? It means that in this beautiful incarnation, when God took flesh, Right. He took on our likeness and it means that Jesus had a human body. It means that he had human emotions. Right. A soul. It means that he had a human body. And we can see this first John four two, John 11 and Luke two fifty two. When he was conceived. Even before he was a fetus. Scripture says he came and took flesh. And if they had 4D ultrasound, then they could have seen that beautiful promise of God that could fit on the tip of a pen.
Right. So I want to close out with this. To sum it up, to be created, created in the image of God means that you have been created with intrinsic value that is not based on any arbitrary set of rules or standards created by man. To be created in the image of God means that there is a universal standard for how all of humanity should be treated, including the unborn. There is a lot of talk nowadays about what does it mean to be pro-life. There's articles that says, well, I really wish my evangelical friend was pro-life. Or there's articles that saying, well, you know, you're down for the right to life, but you're not down for a quality of life. And again, we go into these talking points and I'm kind of like, I don't even know what life is. But to help us understand that, I go back to that passage of scripture where it talks about, um, if you could pull up uh, the slide with um, the Heidelberg Catechism. I started off with a, a scripture earlier where it says, die shall not murder. You see, that scripture doesn't just mean you shouldn't kill people. What the scripture is that we should also seek to protect and preserve life. You see, when they talked about it, and it's the Heidelberg Catechism, you know, you know, Google it. I can't talk about it anymore. Um, and when they kind of flush out what it means to die shall not murder, it says, no, it says, is it enough then that we do not murder or neighbor our neighbor in any such way? Answer, no. By condemning envy, hatred, and anger, God wants us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to be patient, peace-loving, gentle, merciful, and friendly toward them, to protect them from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. Family, I love this because it just basically love our neighbor. Love our neighbor. Do all that we can do to protect and preserve life. That's what it is to be you know, pro-life. And so we go. And so what is it to be pro-life? To be pro-life is to be a prophetic voice for the unborn. To be pro-life is to teach parents that they don't need to sacrifice their baby to either survive or thrive in this world. To be pro-life is to bring the good news to the abortionist, the father, the mother, the pro-abortionist activist, that if they repent and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, he will forgive them. That's pro-life. That's gospel. And so what we're going to do is like, again, next week, we're going to talk about how does this look practically in our hood? Um, and so, one, I'm just glad that the elders allowed me to be able to speak on this issue. And once again, I just want to encourage us, um, man, to choose life and just be used by God to bring a light into our hood. Amen.
At this time, we will have a time for communion as well as offering.